how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. It stretches back at least 10 years, said Edgar Wright about the story idea for Last Night in Soho. Edgar, who's well known for his musical tastes, such as movies like Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim, and Baby Driver, seems to write, direct, and edit with a score or soundtrack in mind. For this latest story, crafted the character of Eloise, an aspiring fashion designer who discovers she can enter the 1960s essentially through the life of a dazzling wannabe singer named Sandy, until the glamour of this world splinters into something darker. Christy Wilson Carnes, who was writing credits for Penny Dreadful in 1917, was introduced to write while he was editing Baby Driver by Sam Mendez, known for Skyfall in 1917. Through this mutual friendship, Edgar invited Christy to work with him on this feature. In this interview, the writers talk about their detailed outlining process, stories that haunt you, how soundtracks can change the writing process, and how to write surgical bits of dialogue. I'll try and do the, the short version of the story <laughs> that stretches back at least 10 years. But um, I, I guess I'd been thinking up the, the story for the movie for a long time. And there are a couple of inspirations for it. Well, many inspirations for it. One of them is sort of a, a, an unhealthy obsession with the 60s that probably started with my parents' record collection. And, um, and th this feeling that maybe I'd missed out on the coolest decade just before me. So I was born in the 70s. And, um, and then I guess just moving to London as a 20-year-old and, uh, and spending an inordinate amount of time in Soho, which for people who don't know, London is a, is a very um, interesting square mile right in the centre of London that has been an inspiration to artists and writers um, for, I don't know, 400 years. Um, <laughs> And is and a, a place where, you know, kind of um, the entertainment district and the criminal underworld mix, I guess. So it's something that like when I first moved to London in 1994, it was um, it was a very compelling and exciting, but also 
sometimes disturbing sort of area and I, I haven't been able to escape it <laughs> for the last 27 years and then and then like so I, I'd formulated the story and and I'd, I'd even pitched it to my producers like 10 years ago to the point where whilst I was doing other movies I, I hired a researcher to sort of research aspects of the story and then I was I really wanted to to make it but I hadn't started the screenplay yet and the missing piece of the puzzle, I guess, was meeting Christy in 2016 when I was editing Baby Driver that Sam Mendes had introduced us as, uh, you know, saying that we should, we, sh we should be, Sam Mendes is our mutual friend and said that we should get to know each other. And so, the, and then the first time I met Christy was in, so in Soho itself and sitting opposite one of the few strip clubs, strip clubs left in Soho called Sunset Strip on Dean Street. And then Christy can take over this part of the story. <laughs> yes, we, and I met in, a, in quite a, you know, nice private members club opposite a strip club. And I just happened to mention, oh, by the way, I used to live above that strip club. I, I lived in the top floor of Sunset Strip. Um, granted, my apartment wasn't a strip club, but it was very much in the building. And um, and I worked in a I worked in an Irish bar right around the corner from there as well. And, and I think, you sort of recognise me as a fellow Soho person. And um, Edgar says, I have an idea um, set in Soho. Um, can I tell it to you? And I suppose it just needed the right setting. So we went on a night out and um, we went to a few of like my old haunts, which were not the private members clubs, you know, a bit dingy kind of sad basement bars that were a bit dangerous and, and very good fun. And we ended up in the basement of this bar called Trisha's, which is literally on the same block as I'm on now because we're both still in Soho. <laughs> we never yeah. escaped Soho. But well, um, I'm here right now as well. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have done it together, but we're two streets apart. Um, but yeah, so we um so we ended up in Trisha's and Edgar told me the story that would become last name Soho. And and I wasn't, you know, on it as a collaborator, I was just as a as a fan and as a friend. And I remember being totally and utterly like entranced by it. Um, and some of that was the gin and tonic, but I'd say 99% of it was the fact that it was just a story, the likes of which I'd never heard before mm -hmm. um, or seen. And um, then I think about nine months later, right before Christmas, because I like to think of it as a, as a very nice Christmas present, Edgar called me up and said, do you remember that story? And I hadn't stopped thinking about it because, I mean, I walk through Soho pretty much every day of my life. Um, and and once you hear that story, it really gets under your skin. And I was like, yeah, of course. And he's like, do you want to write it with me? And I said, yes, absolutely. And then I think I got, I got the outline. I got the playlist, which is pretty much the same playlist that's in the film, in the same order that's in the film, apart from one. <laughs> which is like that just tells you the level of of um, like cinematic mastery that Edgar. He already knew where everything was going to be, and. Um, and a, and a stack of DVDs about as tall as I am. And I cycled into, I think our office was in Fitzrovia, right mm. in office, or, or in Soho, actually, it could have been either. And we, yeah, the first time I met you for writing this, I remember walking into the room and you had like, um, I mean, for lack of a better term, a very serial killer aesthetic up on the wall where all the beats, everything, how it was going to work out. And um, I think you were worried that I was going to like run a mile when I saw that, but that's my aesthetic as well. <laughs> I is do. That all the, it's like the 40 index cards. <laughs> 10 for act one, 20 for act two, 10 for act three, but then lots of extra index cards going off 
like this big kind of like what do you call like a cloud um is it cloud diagram it was yes. like some kind of constant constant like you know like uh tangential um extra cards of things and then i remember different, you post- different color coding yeah and post-it notes with good lines on it as well like all this stuff but i mean i like you know i i was so happy to be kind of invited into that sanctum and yeah we started writing it i think we spent maybe like six weeks writing the first draft we had a lot of fun we ate a lot of candy we listened to a lot of music um, very often the next door neighbours would complain about was it Puppet on a String we'd heard seven times yeah. in a row? Sometimes when we'd listen to songs repeatedly the next office would come in and say guys please <laughs> So what were some of the other logistics of that like like literally here, Christy are you on the keyboard are you guys just having a conversation what was that kind of like what day to day um, I mean it went back and forth didn't it I think we, we worked yeah. with cards a lot at first and sometimes I would type up notes or scribble down notes and then you would type and and then that, then when we got into the kind of the screenplay a lot but we were always almost always in the same room writing it um definitely for the first draft and it would just go back and forth and there'd be loads of discussions and I remember you know quite a lot we would we you know as you're naturally writing you kind of hit a point where you're, you're feeling a bit like cabin fever and we'd go out and wander around Soho and grab a coffee and that always seemed to really help with the creative juices <laughs> I think a lot of it early on was was talking around the story in terms of just detail and either and then in a weird way like a lot of a lot of personal stuff comes into that that's the thing that I found really um, inspiring about the process of working with Christy is that you know you obviously have a fictional story and something which has a level of fantasy about it but it's always amazing to me how much of your own life you can kind of like sort of plug into that and it's something that it would, you wouldn't necessarily think that from the movie you know but there's so much in all of the characters and even like lines that are said to people that you you find things within your life that you've heard you know like heard firsthand you know like let alone second and third hand so that's what was always really fascinating to me. And, and then I think once we got to, a, I, I think it's always that thing, or certainly I don't know, Christy, how you work without me, but I always think it's that thing is that the, the treatment and the outline just keeps getting bigger to the point where they become scenes. And then usually it would be a thing where one of us would say, why don't I have a go at this? And then you rewrite it. Or like, why don't you have a go at this? And then I'll rewrite it and just kind of take it in turns. So it's sort of like, you know, sitting opposite each other, but sort of talking through everything to the point where we know what the scene is. And then it's either sort of, it becomes written within the, or the outline starts to become the draft or you go away and and write a scene and and show it to the other person. It was sort of a combination of all those things, really. Yeah, there was times where the treatment would just start to burst at the seams and you would, you would start to describe the scene. You would start to like, we'd have it and you'd be like, and then I feel like this, this is how kind of the camera's gonna move. This is how this, and I would just be like frantically just trying to like put that down in a way that then was as good as what you were saying. <laughs> a lot of the time there was that. Well, it's that thing where kind of, I, I feel that with the point where it becomes a screenplay is when the story can only be told in dialogue at a certain point, because there's story in terms of plot but then so much, and I found this way when I, you know, writing other scripts, I mean, Simon used to write, is that there's a certain point where the lines are dictating the plot, as in it's the only way of, of, of exp- 
it's the only way of something hinging on something. So once you start putting dialogue into the treatment, the, the screenplay is starting to write itself, you know? Christy, what was kind of different for you? So like Edgar is really known um, for a lot of his transition scenes. There's a lot of visual comedy or visual aids. There's a lot of music and sound. And does that all come later? Is some of that in the screenplay? Like what, what kind of surprised you about working with Edgar? That's sort of utterly imbued in the script, I think. And I mean, it was imbued in the story before I ever even came on board. I mean, I think, you know, the key to any good screenplay is that it reads visually, mm-hmm. is that it caters to that sense specifically, but that it should cater to all the senses. And I think, you know, having the playlist before we started, like, really putting pen to paper was so that was the only thing about this that was really different to me because I always try to write visually and I know working with Edgar, having been a fan of his films, I knew the calibre and the level of kind of like visual acumen that was going to be required in the script. So I, like I came in kind of very ready to try and up my game to that. But um, having, the, having the playlist allowed me to understand the tone and the pacing of a lot of the scenes um, and knowing, you know, this is, this is the song, this song is going to play at X and this is how it's going to play and this is the section of that song that I want really allowed me as a writer to like throw myself into it and and I I never write listening to music like I don't I, I write in total silence like a strange benedicting muck just ideally in a <laughs> somewhere um but having those songs I would listen to them over and over and over again as I wrote and and just having the beat having that form the sort of rhythm of the dialogue was so important and um was so welcome I loved it did you guys see this as a two-hander? Like, what were some of the difficulties of the two acts between the two main actresses? Or is it more about a mirror image of the singular plot? I think, actually, in, in a way, like... I think maybe, like, you know, in, in a way, like, it, is, it isn't a two-hander in terms of... Um, maybe that's what you think it's going to be. And then obviously something happens in the second half that kind of rob- robs you of that and robs our heroine of that. So I think in a sense, we're kind of almost fooling people into thinking we're going to see kind of two plot lines. And then sort of the, the conception of it is that the 60s flashbacks, as, as they start to take a downward slide, they also are getting faster. And also you're not sure whether deliberately you're not sure whether what time frame they're occurring in and and that was very deliberate it was it was something where at at the sort of midway point in the film where things start to take a darker turn that Eloise is experiencing these memories but she doesn't have the full context of the events and neither do we as an audience so you're you're watching what's you know you're watching what's happening on a very visceral level without ever knowing the whole story. So I guess that was, I guess that was part of the idea. And, and actually one of the things that did expand with the screenplay uh, uh, as opposed to my original treatment, it was, and it was Christie's idea, was to sort of expand the Sandy character actually. And I think maybe in my, um, in my original outline, she was more like a sort of, uh, a more of an icon than a sort of character in her own right. And, and Christie, you know suggested that you know sandy should kind of we should hear her speak i think in my original outline the idea was that you know you saw her in these dreams but you didn't necessarily have dialogue scenes with her 
And I'm really glad that Christy changed my mind on that. I'm not even changed my mind, but just suggested it because I think I think, it, I think you're I think you were very open to it. I, there was I had to do almost no work to change that. <laughs> but it was it was interesting. As soon as we started writing those scenes with dialogue, they were so like fun to do, like writing, you know, the dialogue of a, a scene set in the 60s. So so that was one of the things that kind of I think came up. But I guess, I guess it was always that structure where whereby you know, when you have this kind of shock, grim twist in the second half, the person that you're kind of feel that, you know, you're aspiring to be is kind of like sort of disappearing down the drain, you know? Given kind of your your background of work, was there any pressure from the studio or fans to add comedy to this? Or was it the plot is going in such a clear direction that it's it's going to be more of a straight horror than your other films? Well, I don't think fans had any idea what I was doing, so they didn't have any input whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, um, not really. I mean, if anything, I think maybe like fans over the years have been asking me, was I ever going to do a straight horror film? It's right. sort of been the, the opposite thing, in fact, because I think sort of, um, you know, like Shaun of the Dead is a horror comedy, but things do take a very dark, grim turn in that movie, like in the final sort of act and... I think I think I I had always wanted to do like a straight horror film, um, not that it's this is is a, is a straight straight horror film. It obviously kind of is a, a bit of a kind of genre bender itself, but um, no, there wasn't no there wasn't any pressure. I think the sort of the the studio understood exactly what it was. It wasn't they weren't, they weren't expecting anything else. I had kind of like what I had pitched as what I wanted to do. And what we came up with was exactly that. So it wasn't they. It wasn't like they were expecting something funnier. I've heard you say in another interview. I, I'm paraphrasing. I think you called it a, a necessary amputation as far as like cutting scenes. I think you cut maybe six or seven scenes from Soho. Um, do you have any difficulties? Like, do you compartmentalize between writing, directing, and editing, or is it kind of one fluid thing? And you've got this real north star. Like, what kind of guides you to like? know when to cut some things because they're not quite right in the end i mean usually the edit is like they always say the edit is the final draft and i think sometimes you know there was one particular scene in soho that i think was actually on paper was really well written and i think when we shot it i think the actors did a great job with it but from the very first screening it was clear to me and christy at least that we didn't need the scene and I hate to say it, but I felt like we'd been nudged a little bit from notes about expanding something that we felt didn't really need to be expanded, was better left unsaid. And ultimately, when we kind of, you know, showed it to an audience, you know, that's what they thought. It just didn't seem that like you needed it anymore. So in a weird way, it's that thing. I think sometimes when you do those scenes and, and obviously in retrospect, if you knew you weren't going to need that scene, you would save yourself half a day shooting it um but in a strange way it's that thing that sort of maybe like helps the actors like a scene that ultimately doesn't exist mm. in the movie but it certainly helps them get a sense to wrap their heads around their characters so it's interesting it's an interesting part of the process and obviously like you know you if you went back and did it all again knowing everything you know now you wouldn't shoot a single shot of any scene or or part that's not going to make it but it's just something that kind of comes out of the process. You know, sometimes people will like read the script and saying, oh, I wanted to hear a bit more about this. And then you realize ultimately you don't need it. 
what what actually happened was is that we we cut some stuff out from the movie that was ultimately felt like it was um not not additive um to the to the to the film but we did some reshoots where we actually I guess put some of the same sentiments in in earlier scenes so that was something that actually was quite surgical in a really great way where we could watch the film that we test screened and then look at ways to sort of like improve it with some really like surgical bits of dialogue that we could add to existing scenes Hmm. Um, and that was that was actually a really great so in a way for me and Chrissy that was like the final draft is like and we got this thing that like we're we really like we you know like sort of um we're really happy with it but what if we did this this and this and just just really like kind of um um little additions where you can actually sort of you've you've seen the film so it's beyond like reading a draft or doing a table read now you've like seen the film and now you can see in a very sort of surgical way where you could add some kind of like do, do some really additive kind of um, uh, parts of scenes. Do you have certain like rules in mind that you guys discussed about how you open a film? Because your movies like Baby Driver and, and Shaun of the Dead, they're so clear with the tone and things that's happening and this underlying struggles of characters, things like that. Like what are some of those things that has to be in the first five or 10 minutes of a movie? I don't know if I ever like um, have, I, I, you know, like I could never teach a screenwriting course because I don't really know what my own rules are. <laughs> but, um, I guess I guess there's that thing where I think there's nice things that you can do. You know, where's that that Robert McKee thing of like establishing theme in the first five minutes? I think there's a nice thing you can do where you can do that in visuals. I think you know, in a lot of screenwriting books, there's always a lot of focus on dialogue, and people don't as a director as well as a writer I'm sort of trying to trying as much as I can to tell the story visually as well so I actually think the first image in Last Night in Soho is something that kind of ends up summing up the movie it's like the whole film is about the difference between perception and reality and the first thing you see is this this silhouette shot of somebody in an amazing ball gown you know and and it looks like maybe like a shot from a you know like a, a Hollywood 50s or 60s musical and then when she switches the lights on, you see that she's just in a sort of mundane kind of like, you know, corridor in her house wearing like a, a dress made out of, of newspaper. So in that sense of like sort of things not being quite, you know, like sort of um, perception versus reality that straight away, that's kind of you're setting things up. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think uh, I haven't really, as you're, as you're asking me the question, I'm trying to think of the opening scenes from my movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know them. I know them. <laughs> I was reckoning my brain. I could think of the last two, and then I was thinking, wait, what is the? <laughs> I, I guess, like, I guess, actually, with Shaun of the Dead, there was something that we tried to do with that film, where the opening scene is like sort of almost like a potted version of the rest of the movie. Mm. It's like everything, everything that kind of occurs in the rest of the movie sort of happens in the opening scene, and so there's little things like that, you know. I think just as a fan and a collaborator, I think what you do in all your opening scenes is you give character and connection to the audience. Like there's something, and, it, and it's so well done that I and I, I wonder if you even do it consciously now and I kind of want to maybe dissect your brain to fully find out. Um, 
but it's just it's just allowing people to see and quite often they're they're characters on their own like baby driver and and of course alien last night and so on and you just let the audience into their world in a way that makes them feel real and whole and it's not through dialogue and it's not through like an explosion or anything like that i think to me that's the only thing the first 10 pages of the script has to do in any film is just give you a character that you're connected to that you're going to move through this world with yeah i mean funny enough now you say it now i've started to remember my own opening scene <laughs> in baby driver i guess the thing that happens in the opening scene again without dialogue is that you as an audience see what he's like with these other criminals and what he's like when he's on his own with nobody watching and it's like with them he's like a professional and stoic and you know like and and then without them he's like a goofball he's like a big kid and that sort of establishes the tension for the rest of the movie is like who is who is he really and who does he want to be you know so you don't typically talk about upcoming work i think you've said you don't like to do that and i totally understand that i think with soho and baby driver you kind of carry those ideas for like 10 years when do you normally know that this is my next project? Is it intangibles? Is it like an obsession? Like what goes from like a scrap of paper idea to like this full outline on the wall and that type of thing? Um, I guess like with the, with those two, at least like, and, and me not talking about future projects is only just a superstitious thing. <laughs> having been silly enough to do lots of interviews about a film that I eventually not made. And I, I don't regret not doing the movie, but I do regret doing the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like my major regret. People say, do you, ever, do you regret not doing that movie? I say, no, but I regret talking about it in total film before. <laughs> so um, what, what is it? I guess it's like a nagging thing where like, if it won't go away, then you know, you have to kind of like do the movie. So I think both a Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho it's this kind of really nagging sense of like, I have to make this movie because I can't stop thinking about it. I think that's the thing is it's sort of that, I don't want to make any childbirth analogies, but there's that feeling where it's like, you're not, you're not in control of like giving birth anymore at a certain point. It's like, this is, this is happening now. I, get, I have to make it if I can, you know? So I don't know. It's a really tricky thing to sort of, it's not that there's a sort of divining sort of rod aspect to it, but it's more like, the film is sort of haunting you at a certain point, especially with Last Night in Soho. It was just something that I, I couldn't get out of my head. And like over the years, including Christy, I'd sort of told people the story like it was like a, a campfire tale. So at some point you've got to like go for it, you know? We interviewed Paul Schrader and I think he said he doesn't write anything until he's got the whole story. He can tell it over like 45 minutes. It's kind of like he carries it with him like that. Um, when you guys are thinking back to earlier in your career, are there any misconceptions or false beliefs you had that are no longer true after writing a few scripts? Oh, that's a good question. I think sort of, I think the thing like, um, I think the thing that you do as a writing early on is, is like, you want to sort of write less and achieve more. I think that's the thing is I feel like sometimes with like things I've written before you see kind of how overwritten they are and it's like you're trying to sell people on the idea that you're a writer rather than actually writing a good screenplay <laughs> so I always feel as a, and as a director I read other people's scripts and sometimes when you get sent scripts and there's like a solid block of prose 
like you think, no, no, no. And then, and then I, I'd actually, when I was writing, I'd, I'd look at the people who can write stage directions really well. And there are a couple of writers that I would sort of read their scripts because I like the way that they wrote action. And like Walter Hill is like the king of like writing action. And also James Cameron is great at writing action. So is like Tarantino and Shane Black. And, and usually it's something where it's kind of, doesn't even describe everything that's happening. It's just got the snap of what you are going to see on screen. And that's more important. And sometimes when you read people's scripts where they've just kind of overdone it on the prose, like I, I, that's, that's a sort of lesson learned was like trying to find a way, like if you read the Scott Pilgrim script, I think it gets the tone of it across without ever having to explain the entire fights, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, I think for me, like the best thing I've learned over the years is that like, just let actors act. You know, I, I'm obviously in a very fortunate position, like I work with people like Sam and like Edgar, and um, and you know that not only are they fantastic directors and know how to get performance, but they usually have you know absolutely stellar cast. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, I'll write something, and then you realise a good actor and a good director can get that with a look. Mm. And it's I I I love I mean I like to be on set and I love watching them cut dialogue on set because they've got another way of doing it because like. It is a visual medium. <laughs> and if you if you can tell it in a look, that makes me look so much better rather than like a bank of dialogue that I've slaved over for months. And it's like, oh, it's great. That it, I don't need that now. And so I think that's my biggest note to anyone that's like moving on is like trust your actors, let them act it. Chris, is there I always love that oh, I always love that story about a fistful of dollars that like Clint Eastwood had this big monologue about his backstory and um to this, to the like the romantic lead, and it had a, a page of dialogue um, where he's explaining his sort of origins. And he went to Sergio Leone. He said, uh, "Hey, I rewrote my dialogue today. What do you think?" And he changed this whole monologue to, "I used to know a girl like you." <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, because usually actors would go the other way; they'd like to say more. But I love the idea of, of Eastwood pitching. What if I just said this? <laughs> <laughs> Christy, to kind of go off what Edgar said a, a second ago, did you have anything you do in later drafts, especially for like 1917, if something looks clunky, because there's so much action in that movie and that, that's what it is basically, that you went back and, and kind of trimmed down, like, what do you do to make those, think, make it shorter? I mean, I, like, I think there's a notion that it needs to be shorter. Mm -hmm. Um that's kind of wrong. It doesn't need to be shorter. It just needs to read visually. It needs to, you need to make it in a way that everyone reading it plays a movie in their head. Mm. And so like, you know, with 1917, we have to be so specific on like camera angles and shots and, and transitions and stuff like that. But I didn't want to put any of that in the script because the minute I see the camera moves here or we cut to, or we transition out of like, as soon as you use any of that technical language, you remind people who are reading right. it that they're reading a technical document as opposed to reading something that's about emotion mm -hmm. um, and about character and about a journey um yeah i think i think i mean i spend a lot of time writing and rewriting prose i, I find dialogue quite easy because dialogue is just like you hear it every day of your life i'm your i was a weird kid that used to eavesdrop on buses so like i like i i just i know dialogue i know how other people speak and I, it's quite like you know as soon as you get the characters in your head and you know who they are they'll talk and it will naturally kind of work out. But prose, I think, is is where your script can be like perfect or can be totally broken. It's the make or break. 
Um, and so I spend a lot of time working on, and, and my first draft, I, I overwrite it. And then I spend a lot of time stripping it back and stripping it back and trying to get it to a stage where I'm almost like to be incredibly pretentious, like thinking like Hemingway, where he says so much with so little. And it's like, how can you do that? Like, how can you tell someone that this is this entire vista and this is how we're going to move through it, but in three lines? Or if you've got to do it in 20 lines, that's fine. But how do you make it entertaining? Like, how do you make them just lean into it? Um, so, yeah, I spend a lot of time on prose. I love prose. I don't mind a bank of prose as long as it's good. Also, weirdly, I like how scripts look aesthetically when they're not just like poof, 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 or just dialogue. Like there's a like a beautiful jigsaw puzzle to them that I enjoy. <laughs> I try and make stage directions more succinct um, because I have a slightly OCD thing about if there's a paragraph where one word goes into the next line, I like have to get rid of that word. So then it's like, okay, how can I say it in less? Because I hate this overhanging word. And you know, I, I remember, people, I remember people get, wise that. You, people get wise to you changing the tabs yes. so the paragraph can be. So I was always like thinking, let's I can get rid of one word so it goes on for three lines instead of four. We did we <laughs> did like a playing, pass like, it's like playing fucking Tetris. <laughs> yeah, we, we absolutely did a Tetris pass on this, and we sat and ate revels. Uh, which are like a kind of candy and we were like well we do this well, we do this and we never change the tab because that's cheating <laughs> wink wink can it be any shorter is like listen if we lost one word from every paragraph you could shave <laughs> off two pages <laughs> i think we're about out of time we'll, we'll just do uh one more you guys have given a lot of great advice already if you could kind of maybe go back and give yourself early screenwriting advice or if you're breaking in the industry today what, what advice might you pass along to young screenwriters? I mean, the thing that, thing that I think, um, I, I didn't set out to be a screenwriter. What sort of happened? I did want to be a director. And what sort of happened when we wrote Shaun of the Dead was that we did that, out of, not out of necessity. We wanted to make a film. And I guess we realized that nobody was going to write something for us. And we had to write it ourselves. The thing that we did, which I would urge anybody who's an aspiring writer to do, is not only read other screenplays, but I think even more importantly, is watch movies and sort of break them down. Like I remember me and Simon, before writing Shaun of the Dead, we did that a lot where we watched films that were sort of slightly relevant to what we were doing. Or even sometimes just kind of classic films that we liked and tried to kind of like, tried to sort of break them down into that. I mean, not to be kind of cynical about it in the sort of Sid Field sort of way of like the three act structure and all of those beats, but it is an interesting process when you do that because you start to understand how things can work and, and also how many different iterations of those kind of like twists and things that could be sort of um, in every sense. So that, that was a really interesting thing for me. And I sort of, I don't often like have time to do that anymore but I really enjoyed doing that where you take one of your favorite films and try and dismantle it you know yeah I mean I think I think reading screenplays is the best bet that you can really like get an education from and I, like I used to like to read screenplays for films I'd never seen and then watch the film and see if it matched up matched up to what my imagination was and I, I learned a lot from that in the sense of like when then I started making short films Sometimes I'd write a short film and I'd give it to director and it'd come back and I'd be like, well, oh, that's not what I wrote. And rather than go, they haven't directed it right, I would look at my short film script and I'd go, well, where did I go wrong? Mm. Like, where, how could I write this in a way that would make it undeniable that it should look like this? Um, 
and yeah, so I think I think reading lots, and then I think I think doing it lots is really helpful. I mean, I I wrote loads of short films in in film school, and 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 I learned more from that than I learned from just sitting writing because it's like the actual practical application, and and then seeing an edit and seeing something all the way through, and that's that you know that's nice work if you can get it. I suppose that's that's handy if you're in a film school or something like that where you have a pipeline. But if not, like I suggest, then even get your friends and block a scene that you've written and like, you know, put it up on its feet and have them speak the words and see how believable it is. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.